0: Well, thanks all for coming. A lot of familiar faces, some not so familiar, but you probably are familiar to yourself. That's that's my <laughs> guess. Uh, the uh, beneath the Coyote Hills is uh, well. It was a book I had to write. Uh, I've long been concerned about the whole issue. Concerned. Well, it's just uh, it's kind of woven into to me as a person, the whole issue of success-failure in our culture and how obsessed we are with it. Uh, years ago, when I was visiting uh, England, we had... Uh, I, I loved the uh, conversations we'd have with people in England. People were not afraid to speak their mind. You know, we Americans are so afraid if we say what we believe, someone disagrees with us that's the end of the friendship whereas I found that you know with our friends in England the whole point was to disagree with each other to get angry to yell at each other and then you were best of friends next day it was forgotten but uh, a woman said uh, one night uh, you know you Yanks are obsessed uh, with success and, and with the idea that if something happens to you it's always your fault And I'm thinking of Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher who said, character is fate. Well, maybe everyone in Western culture believes to some extent character is fate, but we've taken it to another level. Witness Mr. Trump. Uh, We believe that if we get cancer, we've done something wrong. Maybe I didn't eat right. Uh, maybe I didn't exercise enough. Everything is our fault. If we lose our job due to an economic downturn, it must be our fault. I messed up. I suppose that if we go to war, and, uh, which we've done plenty enough, and you are wounded in battle, it must be your fault. Well, I've always had a bit of a problem with this. Uh... I do think that it 's very difficult to know to what extent something happens through our own uh, efforts, so to speak, and, and to what extent it happens through simple luck we don 't know so in a way, this is a central idea in this book it 's what motivated it and every every work of fiction, of course, is about fate. I mean, what else could it be about? but in a way, I've doubled down on that in beneath the coyote hills and really make it a theme. Uh, A lot of people who I've had the pleasure of being interviewed a number of times already about the book, and everyone's asked me, I mean, everyone who's interviewed me has asked, so were you thinking of Donald Trump? (laughs) I said, well, actually the book was finished before Trump was running for president, but in a way, he and people like him because we have plenty of them were there in the back of my mind and so you will see here in the chapter I'm going to read, chapter 2 you will see a character at the end of the chapter who may be a little like Donald Trump, I don't know perhaps but what's going on in the book is that the main character Tommy, I'll just tell you a little of this because otherwise it might be a bit confusing it wouldn't be if you read the first chapter but when well, I'm starting in the second it might be This is basically Tommy Aristophanos' story. He's uh, a man who has very little luck in his life. He's uh, an epileptic visionary. Of course, he has the situation that he is thrown to the ground at times through no fault of his own. And he has to get up again. That's the whole thing. Can he get up again? Uh, So he obviously knows that It's not all a matter of our own. Choosing things happen we have no control over. So, Tommy is writing a novel about a man named V.C. Hofstadter, Volt. Volt is his opposite. He's a man who has great nothing but luck in his life. He's very wealthy. He He builds an economic empire. And what happens eventually in the book, I won't give too much away, but... Tommy's story about Volt invades the novel I'm writing and begins to take over. So Volt steps out of the novel that Tommy's writing and enters his life and causes him all kinds of trouble. But that's only the beginning of it. There is perhaps yet a third novel within this novel. And in the end, I have no idea who's writing it. I wrote part of it, I believe, but I'm not sure I wrote it all. Volt is no stand in for my older brother. Sure, they have traits in common, but like I say, all successful people are alike. I'm Zach's opposite in all respects. Growing up, I despised his slick bastard ways, his triple alpha plus personality, right down to the way he wore his jeans, slung low on his hips and skin-tight T-shirts as if to brag about his physique. I was contrastingly pudgy. Zach had many girlfriends in high school, often at the same time and bragged about shagging every chick on the rally squad, had a trophy drawer filled with their panties to prove it. Well, I didn't date until college, except that once. He perfected a method of edging up on the lead runner in track meets, catching the leader's heel with his spikes, and sending him sprawling on the cinders, then running over him. I saw him practice the maneuver at home, well, I had given up baseball and avoided all sports except archery, which I practice secretly. Uh, you could say riding is my sport, given how I hunch over the keyboard, fingers racing, sweating profusely and panting when I'm on a roll. Although it's truly more of an addiction, like failure. To us Americans, failure is existential leprosy. Failure is America's true F word. Every school child knows this. Kindergartners pump their fists in the air like celebrant athletes when they best a classmate. Me, me first. But we can't all be first. No one prepares us for this truth. How could they? We would refuse to accept it. The rest of the world laughs at our success. Failure hang up. Polls show we are one of the unhappiest people on earth. We kill each other and ourselves more than anyone else. We can't stay married. We don't educate our kids. We trampled each other <coughs> in our race to the top. And to the head-shaking world, we say, go fuck yourself, losers. After college, I lived for a year in the Humboldt County Redwoods. Practice for the life I had no idea was coming. Prospectively, a life rambles and makes little sense. Retrospectively, everything fits neatly into place and seems foreordained. Out in my Humboldt ravine, I learned how to bake bread in an oven I fashioned of clay, how to find ra- uh, water, snare rabbits, bag deer with my bow it, and butcher them, using their hides for blankets and buckskin trousers. I learned that bracken fiddleheads, cattail tubers, and chanterelles are edible, while Amanita pantherina is toxic and Amanita muscaria produces hallucinations like those I have before a spell. I fashioned a fish weir in the stream that flowed through my canyon, its steep walls dense with old-growth redwood, too steep to log. The coast range with its ravines and dense forests is an unexplored wilderness as wrinkled and convoluted as the human brain. Flatten it out, it would be the size of Texas. Little wonder that Bigfoot thrives there. (coughs) Undetected, I often saw Sasquatch footprints, but only once got a glimpse of one, its eyes glowing from the forest as it watched me sitting by the campfire. At first, I thought one of my demons... Then I watched it bound up a precipitous slope in the moonlight as though over flat ground. I had no spells out there, no accidents. Makes you wonder if trouble has a human face like the devil. I lay out under the night sky with arms folded behind my head, the cosmic chorus humming and twinkling in a narrow strip above columnar redwoods about close as you can get to ecstasy. After Humboldt, I fell into the soapstone hash pipe business in Berkeley. Falling into things is a theme in my life. Maybe that's the difference between successful... Maybe that's the difference. Successful men plot their lives on a spreadsheet. Well, we unsuccessful types don't even take notes. I met a girl named Karma who knew Berkeley Don, who sat uh, cross-legged on Telegraph Avenue with walnut hash pipes spread out in a filthy blanket in front of him. It was said he had been sitting there since 1968. Ageless like Walt Whitman, Don had brought the 60s along with him into the present. Everywhere else, it was the mid-80s, but Berkeley remained suspended in the 60s, like a long guitar riff in a non-stop Doors concert, which no one wanted to leave. Karma suggested we make soapstone pipes, guessing the soft soft stone a natural insulator would provide a cool smoke. We carved our first pipes by hand and hand polished them, streaks of color hovering beneath the glazed glazed surface like ghost images. Our pipes sold faster than we could make them. So we converted our rangy apartment on Blake Street to a pipe factory and bought a bandsaw to rough out pipes from sheets of stone, a press to drill inhalation and bowl holes, and power sanders to shape and smooth them. We made three basic models, short tutors, long slender tokers, and small oval pocket pipes a smattering of Indian peace pipes, we would drive to San Francisco, our tercel weighed down with boxes full of pipes, and sell them to head shops and liquor stores. We walked the mean streets of the hate and tenderloin, our pockets bulging with rolls of bills. So scraggly-haired and funky, our jeans coated with soapstone dust that no one paid us any mind. Berkeley Don was right out of a Ginsburg poem. A round, soft-bellied, mellow man in a white Indian kurta pajama shirt with embroidered collar and sleeves sitting in a lotus position out front of Moe's books, chain-smoking weed, his glossy pipes arrayed like totems on his blanket, tangled black hair casted, cated over his chest and melded with his dark beard and chest hair spilled out of out the tunic collar like a fringe of animal fur. His round head seemingly haloed in a dark nimbus, a bald patch dead center of his skull like a mortal wound. Before discovering LSD in peyote, Don was pursuing a PhD in nuclear physics. Working at the Lawrence Radiation Lab, he sank into LSD like a stone, like my father sank into the bottle. Don saw the devil sitting on his bedroom floor one day toad feet tucked under him the gleaming brains spilling out of his skull exhaled and inhaled like molten lava bubbling out of a volcanic vent Don described them Satan cradled a miniature hydrogen bomb in his lap stroking it like a pet dog who are you? He asked Don in a croaky voice. Don lay curled up in bed. He had dropped a purple the night before and wasn't sure he could talk. Speak up. Everyone must answer, the devil insisted. Various answers flashed through Don's mind. Math whiz? Physics student? Homosexual? He wasn't sure. Pudgy pipe maker, guitarist, lover of Philip K. Dick novels, genius, some said. He knew the devil would accept none of these answers, since Don didn't accept them himself. I, I, I don't know, man, he managed myself, maybe. The devil laughed and held up a withered finger. How can you be yourself when you don't know who you are, Donald? He had a point. Toad Man sat there reeking of patchouli oil, his tongue flicking snake-like in and out of his mouth. Don was getting used to him. He'd seen worse on bad acid trips. I don't want to be anything, man, he decided. I want to disappear. The devil nodded. And so you will. Then he evaporated into space. Uh, This was an acid trip, right? Karma asked Don, totally freaked out. So do you think he'll come back? Don rarely answered direct questions, but this he answered immediately. I'm done with nuclear physics, man, and the devil is done with me. Far out, Karma cried. I would have thrown a book at him. It reminded me of a vision my father once confessed to me in one of his rare civil moods. It wasn't the devil who visited him, but God with a hydrocephalic's huge head. These visions were turning points in both of their lives as visions can be. We asked Don to join us in our pipe-making venture, which we called the Stoned Works. But he didn't believe in capitalism, so we approached Woody Lindberger, Karma's former boyfriend, who was in the MBA program at Stanford. His dad owned half the BMW dealerships in North America. Karma said he wouldn't care that we were a number. He's cool that way. I certainly hope so. Woody inquired about our business plan, capital outlay, customer base, advertising budget, etc. "'Hold on, brother. We're craftsmen, not capitalists,' I said. "'We make hash pipes,' Woody snorted. "'Grow up. We're all capitalists. Karma says you're making money. If there's a demand for your product, it's worth checking out.' He visited our shop, dowdy furniture covered in stone powder, which formed little drifts on bookshelves, infused our blankets, floated atop water in the toilet bowl, and hung like mist in the air." We worked with the windows open. Still, we were constantly hacking and coughing. Jesus, Woody said, that shit causes silicosis. The disdain in his eyes reminded me of my brother Zach. We took Woody on our sales route. He was too antsy to have tea with Avery, owner of the White Rabbit Shop and the Hate, one of our best customers. Tea with Avery was a tribal ritual, an assertion that this wasn't just about money. He's a freak, Woody said when we left. We're all freaks, I protested. There's a protocol, brother. People want to get to know you, Woody snorted contempt. This isn't a love-in, pal. It's business. He was full of ideas about expansion opening a factory in Mexico, making deals with the big distributors. His eyes held an avaricious sheen. Pop's eyes gleamed like that after he had been drinking and was discussing his plans for the future, barking at us, What, you don't believe me? The long and short of it, Woody quickly took over the business, We were partners in theory, but I couldn't keep up. He made deals with Persian Dreamworks and an importer from Copenhagen to buy grosses of our pocket pipes. Woody told them we were relocating production to Mexico. First I'd heard of it. I supervised production at our tiny factory in a former auto body shop in Oakland, from which exhaust fans spewed soapstone soapstone dust over neighboring houses. We had industrial sanders and drill presses and four part-time employees. I dismissed Woody's impromptu remark about moving production to Mexico. Small is beautiful, I insisted. Small is small, he sneered. So are you allergic to success, Thomas? This could be big. I fought with him over paying our workers' minimum wage. What do hippies need with money, Woody laughed give them some weed and they'll be happy not that I bought into his presumption of superiority just told myself I didn't give a damn I wasn't going to compete with his alpha personality let him take control if it meant so much to him like my father Woody combed his hair straight back tines leaving furrows in his sandy hair he dismissed my opinions with a backhanded slap of his hand as if swatting away an insect both had tidy mustaches, Woody's pencil thin, my father's left over from Navy days. But Pop wore, flatted, wore faded flannel shirts from Loserdom's loserdom thrift store while Woody dressed for success. He had taken to calling me Champ, swaggering into the shop and upbraiding me. Production numbers are down this week, Champ. You having your space outs again or what? I wanted to fatten his lip. Teach him that my spells were off limits. How did he know about them anyway? Some days are good, some bad. Vinny and Superfly didn't show up today. You're the shop foreman, champ. You should have fired those losers a month ago. We had a power outage one day. And I returned home to Blake Street to find Karma and Woody bawling on the couch. She leapt up and covered herself with a towel to hide her nakedness from me. So am I the fucking maintenance man? Or what? I asked her. I'm out of here. Karma apologized when I returned to pick up my things. Insisted it had only happened that once. It didn't mean anything, right, Tommy? We smoked a doobie and it, like, happened, right? Beautiful. Woody's sorry, too. We're both, like, totally bummed out, okay? We never wanted to hurt you. It just happened, okay? So do traffic accidents and suicides. Everything just fucking happens. Woody wants to, like, talk to you. More foreshadowing, but I didn't see it. Do we ever? Later I would wonder if karma was in on the scheme from the start and how Pop's pet expression ended up on her lips. I didn't mean to hurt anyone, it just happened. It seems that no one ever means to hurt anyone, they just do. Woody stop by the shop next day me stupid enough to show up when all the watchdogs of intuition were howling at me to stay away. Woody clamped a hand on my shoulder. Real sorry about the other day, bro. Just something that happened. I laughed convulsively. He regarded me nervously. You're not going to freak out on me, are you? Look, we were horny. It didn't mean anything. We're over, right? Okay? Like he was demanding, I agree with him. He pulled papers from his pants pocket, something about a limited liability corporation. I was named general partner and chief financial officer. He and Karma were named limited partners. So what's the difference? I asked. The difference is uh, you receive 40% of the proceeds from domestic production. Karma and I both received 30%. You're the CFO, pal. You're the man. How's that sound for fair, huh? I've told you I'm not in this for the bread. Then you won't have any objection to signing. We need everything in writing. We don't need lawyers, contracts, and all that shit. We're all in this together. Besides, I need to talk it over with Karma. She's already signed. Woody flashed Karma's tidy signature. Don't get uptight on me. I I thought you weren't in it for the bread. You need to decide now, champ. You in or out, bullying me like Pop did after a spell, chastising me for making the family look bad. Couldn't I have it in my room, for Christ's sake, where nobody has to watch? I had learned to walk away from confrontation early on. It's not easy to break childhood's behavior patterns. So I shrugged and signed the damn thing. Woody gripped my shoulder and smiled, his hand hot as that pipe I would soon use to cauterize my wound. Must have been the same smile Berkeley Don saw the devil wearing. Thanks, champ. He had all he needed. Long and short of it, he ripped me off. They did. I arrived at the shop one morning and found the power tools gone. The boys hanging out in front. What's the shit? Superfly asked. You owe my ass two weeks pay, the other brothers too. You're not planning to rip us off. You know I wouldn't do that, fly. What do you ripped us all off? I told you, man, I've been telling you this whole time. Fucking asshole. Didn't I tell you? "'Yeah, you didn't fly. "'I guess I try to see the good in people. "'Man, you don't see shit.' "'He was pacing the sidewalk in tight circles, "'pants hanging off his ass, "'chains jangling from his pockets, "'pounding a fist into a hand. "'Still, you the man, you responsible, "'you owe me my fucking money, Tommy, right?' "'I wrote them all checks from our business account, "'knowing they would bounce.' as with checks written to our suppliers, one to Sears for our latest sander, the largest of all made out to Lytton Enterprises, whoever they were. Then there was a matter of a bank loan I didn't know anything about until I went to the bank. Our Stoneworks account had been emptied. A stern bank officer told me, you are the CFO and general partner, Mr. Aristophanos. You are responsible for these liabilities. He reminded me of Mr. Villalobos, my Spanish teacher in high school. My partner split with the money, I protested. I had no idea. He raised a hand. I oppose the loan, you realize. I feared something like this would happen. I'm an honest man, sir. I believe in settling my debts. I certainly hope so. We w- We wouldn't want to bring charges. On his desk was a photograph of his family, aligned in hierarchical order from left to right with with himself at the apex. "'You look like a happy family,' I said. "'We are,' he gimped a smile. "'All happy families are alike,' I blurted. "'Mine was an unhappy family, uniquely unhappy.' "'I might have guessed that,' he said." like I do isn't easy I can't just turn a spigot and fill my glass with water I have to haul it in I discovered a live lot water line in a tumble down greenhouse 300 yards from my camp behind the old gal's farmhouse I carry plastic jugs full of water back to camp hung like dead possums from a pole balanced on my shoulder six gallons at a time always at night it takes me 15 minutes to fill the jugs since water comes out of the faucet in a trickle. I must be careful that the old gal's German shepherds aren't out to sound the alarm. They've caught me a few times and I hear the old gal's creaky voice demanding who's there? You hoo hello. I worry that she will call the cops but she hasn't yet. Once the big male got through the chain link fence and came for me snarling and gnashing its teeth lunging at me like some demon out of a spell vision even while fighting the SOB off with the 2x4 I wondered if he was real he caught my foot and I whacked him across the muzzle he ran off yipping amazed me the old gal didn't come out as much racket as we made I mended that hole in the fence with a length of wire and limped home. My foot festered and swelled up with infection, ached to holy hell. I could hardly walk. Dark streaks snaked up my leg, me thinking, here's how it ends. Dying of blood poisoning or crawling out to the road hoping someone stops and takes me to hospital. Amputation at the least. Amputated life, amputated limb poetic justice desperate I heated an iron pipe, pipe in my oil drum wood stove and cauterized the wound with red hot steel could smell flesh cooking hurt so bad I broke a tooth from biting down on a stick but it did the trick flesh soon healed over with tender pink skin saved my leg maybe my life I had serial spells for three straight days after shock or anxiety. That's what gets you. They usually don't arrive until after the crisis has passed. I must ward off fire ants, earwigs, and rats which invade my hut. But natural creatures don't trouble me as much as supernatural ones Sometimes I sneak through the orchard at night to check out strange sounds, hair standing up on my neck, my axe raised at the ready. An ancient spook spirit has begun visiting me dead of night. Taki's, or his pal Whirlwind, feared by the Saboba Indians more than death. Both are said to eat a man's soul out of his living body. I've seen his aura a specter of shimmering gray light against the backdrop of night, cowl-shaped head and legs, thin and scaly as a chicken's. I've seen the cavern of his mouth when it opens to swallow me. Six feet across, rubbery black lips, something like a leopard seals. I've gone sliding down his twisting guts like Alice down a rabbit hole. And though I know it's a spell, a spell vision which leaves me panting, and spent after he is gone. I can't convince myself he isn't real. Like fate, that merciless force which swallows a whole, I can't be sure. Once I saw a huge chicken claw footprint in my toilet pit. Another time found my hut ransacked, clothes scattered over the floor, dishes shattered, and pages of my scribblings pasted against rough walls like a dust devil had blown through. I can't tell where the mind scribbling ends and reality begins. Or if there is any reality at all, perhaps it's all just scribblings. Woody set up shop in Mexico and signed contracts with all our accounts, including one with Persian Dreamworks to supply 20,000 hash pipes a month. I didn't see a penny given that clause in our LLC agreement guaranteeing me a percentage only of domestic production. Woody was as cunning as my brother Zach or V.C. Hofstadter. Stopping by our Blake Street apartment, I found it empty. I'd been sleeping on Vinnie's couch. Karma had left a note on the door. Sorry, Tommy. Hope you're cool. Hope this isn't bad Karma. I stood in a dim living room wanting to believe Woody had conned her too. Sunlight filtered through stained glass on leaded windows and through a red penumbra across the hardwood floor. Motes of soapstone dust still hung on the air. The place smelled of jasmine. Overgrown bushes crowded the house in a jungle of Indian hawthorn jade trees and bird of paradise all tendrilled together by honeysuckle vines swarming with bees. Their humming infused the place. I recall, I recalled how we had curled up naked on the couch with their hum forming an oral cocoon around us. I told her my spells often began with the furious buzzing of bees swarming up from my belly. She wore a scanty smile on her lips and her olive green eyes glowed. She once said she wanted me to have a spell while we were bawling. I bet it's a super rush. An array of our pipes was lined up on the mantel like a tiny alder she had left for me, along with my jade Buddha, a plump, featureless Berkeley Don, seated in a lotus lotus position. There were butterfly pipes, an assortment of our standards in grays and blue greens, streaked with rust-red striations, all lovingly waxed, short tulkers, tapering top to bottom, seemingly carved from tropical wood, given their multicolored grain, a totem pipe with a bone-white spine like a miniature replica of stone stone megaliths in ancient Hatra, a heart-shaped pipe I'd carved for karma from jade-colored stone. On one side, a woman with a flowing mane of textured stone hair and childlike face. A broigalish peasant's face carved into the flip side, furrowed brow and sharp features, with the brass ring of the smoking bowl forming an eye. My favorite was a pipe Karma had made of blue-gray stone. She had carved flowers and twining vines into it with a dremel, delicate, innocent, something like Karma herself. It was smoke-darkened around the bowl, a residue of burnt ash inside I brought it to my nose and inhaled the musty smell. It was the pipe we had shared together. She'd left them there for me in our hippie sanctum sanctorum, beaded curtains and mattress spreads over couch and bed, stained glass lampshades, a hookah in one corner, the lingering scent of patchouli oil melting into jasmine, I stood at a window looking out on Blake Street passer- street and passers-by. It might have been the 60s. Tie-dye shirts, sandals, and so much hair. The fetish of all revolutionaries. We were hair vain amidst the close-cropped Reaganites. I realized at that moment that I was a revolutionary in my way and realized that I loved karma. She had broken my heart. Standing at the window where no curtain hung, I saw you. I saw you coming back to me. I stood crying like a child then found some comfort as I gathered up those pipes she had left for me. Love doesn't reside in platitudes or grand proclamations, but in the earthy details, small gestures, leavings, like the love we've carved into those pipes. Thank you. Any questions, thoughts? Yeah. I don't know that I have anything to say or ask about it, but, but um, well, except that, I guess talk more about how you came to that. Mm. Well, to be perfectly honest, I had a, a reading tour in San Francisco after my last book came out, and the first reading was at the San Francisco Public Library, the main library, so oh, this is great, this is exciting. There will be a big crowd there. It will be great. Well, there were, at that reading, there were the two librarians. There were two students, high school students. I don't know how the hell they got there. I think their teacher, for some reason, just looked through the paper and said, go to this event. So they did. And there were three homeless people. I was delighted to read to the homeless people. They seemed like my perfect audience for that book. And that was it. So I, you know, okay, all right, that's, that's all right. My next reading was a little better. It was in Berkeley. And at least some old friends and, uh, and my niece who I hadn't seen in years, and, and a cousin of mine I hadn't seen in even longer showed up, and a few other people. Then I had a reading over at book passages in uh, Wren County. I don't know if you know that big fancy store they're so proud of their. tremendous reading list, and that, you know. Well, thank God my wife was there. And one other person. So after that reading, we're staying at a motel in Berkeley. I'm walking down the hall. You know. I don't know if I want to quit writing. It's in my blood I you quit writing. Until you know then. Uh, Why do I need to publish books? Why don't I have need to go out and promote books? I don't need to put myself through this because despite what writers will say, I don't care what the critics say about my work. I never read reviews. Bullshit. I don't care if no one reads my book. What do I care? Bullshit. We do care. We do We want an audience. You don 't just write or put it in the drawer, you don't just dance to have no audience. You don't paint so that stick in the storehouse. So I was pretty down. I was really pretty down. And uh, the book sales were absolutely abysmal. Now I don 't write to sell books. I write, uh, but I would like an audience. So I came back home, and this book literally poured out of me. It was like I had an ailment of some kind. I wasn't writing it. I was just taking dictation. And uh, it was pretty fantastic, but uh, that's that's kind of how it happened. But it's something I've thought about all my life, been an issue for me and, and for all of us of course. It's an issue for all of us. Yeah, I think you really touched the nerve so I was just wondering yeah. how, how particularly you came to that. it. You know, we all feel like we don't necessarily not get it to me. No, we don't we don't like talking about it very much, which is understandable. I mean it's <laughs> oh, <but> a revelation. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I wonder if you have the same figure as me, coming to a hospital. Yeah. So it makes you physically know, sick. Yeah, oh, I know. I know the feeling <laughs> exactly. It's a book somewhere. Else. And I know that, you know, they do wonderful people have written all these books. There they are on the shelves. Yeah. And I remember, uh, maybe my book is somewhere. I mean, probably not. Mm-hmm. But uh, it makes you feel really quite small. And, and get from that place you really have to write the book to yeah. come back to the yeah. It does. You know, I, I, at times I told uh, Sen, I, I mean, I hate bookstores. I can't go into them. Of course, it was great when I was first starting out. I, see, I, I did everything backwards. You're supposed to have success later on. I had great success in the beginning. And then I couldn't even get a response from my editor because when Little Brown published my first novel I think they expected to sell tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of copies when they told me they had sold out of printing at 13,000 I was delighted they were very unhappy they'd had enough of me so I went on and I got uh, published with Putnam and my books were in the store but since then, publishing with small houses? No. Our books aren't in bookstores much. Maybe a little here and there, but not much. The reason for that, generally, just in terms of business, is because small presses can't afford to have a return policy. They, they're just on a shoestring, and if bookstores can't sell a book, they want to return it to the publisher, Right. And they get a refund for it. Small houses can't do that. They just don't have the capital to do that. They don't have the warehousing. So it would require that their writers buy back the books that the bookstores don't sell. Well, how can you make an agreement? I I had an opportunity with a with a publisher not long ago. And they said they had a policy to give away as many copies of the book as they felt. Was, you know, kind of item that that made sense to them. They didn't say how many. But you were responsible for paying for those books. I thought, what kind of cons? What if it's 10,000 books? So we don't have return policies, therefore, most small presses don't have books in the bookstore. Let's see. You know, they're they're a buddy of theirs, and they get a few copies in. So it's not a good situation. Uh, look, th- th- this may sound ridiculous, and maybe it is ridiculous. I'm not sure this country will ever produce another great writer because of this situation, because there's no audience for writers much. Uh, the days of... Uh, Faulkner and Hemingway and James Baldwin and maybe Toni Morrison was the last one I think it's unless we change the business model or unless there's some unless the web somehow transforms all this it doesn't look too good because you can write but you won't have an audience and that's kind of the situation we're in. Sounds awful doesn't it? Why would you keep doing it? But but there is some hope that there may, may be some transformation. We'll see. Well, the issue is there, of course, how do you promote your work on the web when you have millions of other people doing that? So it's, it's not easy. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. She's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, Hillary will be elected president. We're, we're not quite ready for fascism yet in this country. But you know, damn it, if we get it, we're all going to have to go out in the street. It's not going to be much fun, is it? I mean, we're going to have to go out in the street. I mean, I'll be there. Now, that book was already written, so it can't happen here. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming.